where common sense, honest conversation, and thought-provoking discussions thrive in a completely independent forum. This is the Roundup Podcast. I'll be the first to admit that I love a little bit of Roundup in my life. Roundup in my life. Here now is your host. He is quite a character. His name is Jeff. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Jeff. Jeff Eager. Hello and welcome to the post-Thanksgiving episode of the Roundup Podcast. This is your host, Jeff Eager, coming to you today from a freezing, frickin' cold Bend, Oregon. It's mid-morning on December 2nd. It's felt like winter here for the most part since November 1. We've had snow on the ground pretty much continuously for that period of time. It is brisk outside this morning. I hope the weather is good where you are. I know many of you are here in Bend, so know exactly what I'm talking about, but some of you are elsewhere. A few things to talk about today, some housekeeping stuff, some new offerings from us here at the Roundup to let you know about. And also, I want to talk about kind of the the prospects for Oregon Republicans moving forward after 2022. There was kind of some mixed messages from the voters in 2022. And there's a lot to think about about what the future of the party looks like here in Oregon in the coming years. And then I want to talk about, I think I was calling this stories from the apocalypse or something like that, my plan to provide you with interesting stories out of Portland, Oregon that could only come from Portland, Oregon. And I have another one of those today to wrap wrap things up. Let's talk about housekeeping first. As you may have seen in the post that went out yesterday, the newsletter that went out yesterday, we have established a new Oregon Roundup Facebook group for paid sub- subscribers only. This is something that I've thought about doing for a long time. As you know, uh, you all can comment on the newsletters and the podcasts when they come out to you via email. Many of you do, and I appreciate that. I always enjoy reading those comments. But the comment section on Substack is not especially conducive to kind of exchanges and debates. And so I've been thinking for a while about starting a Facebook group that would allow paid subscribers of the Roundup to get on there and kind of talk with each other, talk with me about stuff that's in the Roundup or post about other stuff related to Oregon or national politics or politicians' eyeglass choices or whatever comes to mind. And so we've we've set that up and it's there. It's a what is called a private secret Facebook group, which means that only people I let in can get in, and that if you search on Facebook or anywhere else, you don't even know it's there. Did that in order to preserve anonymity for folks that are posting there, at least anonymity outside of the other folks that are on the group. And I want it just to be kind of a something that Roundup paid subscribers have access to and can feel comfortable exchanging ideas and uh, not getting into spam wars. There. So if you are a paid subscriber and you'd like to get access to the paid subscriber Oregon Roundup Facebook group, just email me. I'm sure there's an easier way to do this, but I am not good at this stuff. So the way I've figured out how to do it thus far is just email me and let me know, and then I will have Facebook send you an invite to the group. My email address is Jeff at eagerlawpc.com and that's e-a-g-e-r-l-a-w p as in professional c as in corporation.com 
If you are not a paid subscriber to The Roundup, I'd appreciate it if you became one. It helps support our efforts to put information out there and opinion out there about stuff that's going on in Oregon and national politics that I don't think you can read or hear anywhere else. And it gets you into the Facebook group and makes you feel good about yourself. And you can subscribe by just going to OregonRoundup.substack.com and click subscribe. Let's talk about the prospects for Oregon Republicans going forward. And I think to to really get into this issue, this topic, we need to put in perspective what happened in 2022. The Republicans did worse in Oregon in 2022 than what I and many others had expected. That is consistent with what is seen, and I think accurately, as a a disappointing performance by Republicans nationally, with some exceptions, such as Florida and New York, where the dynamics kind of in the historic trends of this midterm election all pointed to major Republican pickups in Congress, in legislatures, in the governorships, et cetera, with an unpopular incumbent Democrat president, economic problems, high dissatisfaction with the direction of the country among voters. All the ingredients were there for a red wave. And as you know, and as I've written about, it really wasn't a red wave. It was more like a red ripple. Republicans taking slim control of the House, U.S. House of Representatives, and falling short in the Senate with the distance by which it falls short still up in the air pending the Georgia Senate runoff later this month. Disappointing from a Republican perspective, but also still, and including in Oregon, and maybe even especially in Oregon, a strong or solid Republican performance. Republicans got themselves out of the super minority in both houses of the Oregon legislature for the first time in years. That is important in that when the Republicans were in the super minority, which is to say they had fewer than, I think it's a third, of the members in both houses of the legislature, uh, the Democrats could even pass tax measures without any Republican votes. And that's why Republicans, really the only parliamentary maneuver they had at their disposal was to walk out, which they did a couple times in recent years, to deprive Democrats of the quorum that they needed in order to pass what they wanted to pass. Now, after this election, Republicans picked up enough seats in the House and the Senate so that they're no longer in the super minority, which means that if Democrats want to pass a tax increase, they have to get some Republicans to vote with them or potentially, you know, get voters to sign petitions to get it on the ballot and have something approved by the voters. And so that's a big deal. And it's a big deal, I think, especially now in the sense that, you know, the State Economist is now predicting that we will be in a recession next year. You can bet that when we dip into a recession and that will cause a, a decrease in state income tax revenues, the Democrats are going to look for money. Because in Oregon, as much as anywhere else, with the possible exception of California and Illinois, the Democrat Party here exists to feed the beast of state revenue, which in turn feeds the beast of public sector unions, which in turn feeds the beast of the Democrat Party, not to say Democrats are beasts, but that's kind of the funding loop that occurs. And so as state income taxes, which are pretty sensitive to economic downturns, 
as those presumably fall if and when a recession hits, you can expect that Democrats will pull out all the stops to bolster state revenues via tax increases. That's what they've done in past recessions, and it's what they'll do in the next one whenever it comes. And so Republicans seizing a non-super minority, still a minority, but not super minority, in this past election is is a big deal from that standpoint. Republicans also, of course, as we've covered here ex- fairly extensively, won the 5th Congressional District, which means that I will continue to be, remarkably enough, represented by a Republican in the House going, at least for the next two years. I'm living here in Bend. It's kind of weird that Bend is increasingly a, a pretty liberal spot. The whole time I've lived here since graduating from law school in 2004, I've been represented by a Republican because we were included in the second district prior to this year. And the second district is, of course, the, a solidly Republican district that takes all of eastern Oregon, a good chunk of southern Oregon. The Democrats in the redistricting in 2020 decided to put Bend in with the fifth congressional district, which includes part of kind of the suburbs of Salem and Portland and parts of the unincorporated Willamette Valley. And that kind of hilariously to me ended up with the Dems eschewing their incumbent Congressman Schrader, who was a relatively moderate, a long-term incumbent for the 5th District. They, the Democrats drew Bend and its more progressive Democrats into that district, and they nominated their local hero, Jamie McLeod Skinner, who subsequently lost to the Republican, Lori Chavez-Dreamer, who will take office in January 2023. So somehow, even though I live in a very Democrat-heavy city, I continue to be represented by a Republican, despite the uh, best efforts of the Democrats who ran the redistricting process in 2020. All of that is to say that, you know, picking up a congressional district for the first time since 1996 The last time Republicans picked up a second House district was in 1994 in the Republican wave of that year, and then they they promptly lost it in 1996. That election in 1996, I was I've had some issues with Substack over the last week. I actually started and and had deleted two separate posts, one on kind of this this issue of the prospects of the Republicans in Oregon going forward. The second on the the China COVID media thing that I ended up posting about yesterday, the earlier version of both of those got nuked by Substack, which ended up with me kind of rewriting the China one hastily yesterday. And it, I think it ended up kind of rough around the edges. But that was in part because I had technical issues that tubed a good three hours worth of writing between the two pieces prior to putting together the one that actually went out. But anyway, when I was when I was researching for the Oregon Republican forecast piece, which, believe it or not, I do research some of this stuff, even though it probably doesn't seem that way to you, I reminded myself that, so the, the guy that won, the Republican that won Oregon House District or Congressional District 5 in 1994 was a guy named Jim Bunn, B-U-N-N, his brother, Stan Bunn, was also involved in Oregon politics. And in 1996, Stan ran for the Republican nomination in the first congressional district, also representing Portland suburbs, kind of Washington County, et cetera. They ran an ad when they were both on the ballot, presumably in the Republican nomination races for their respective districts, that included the phrase, 
we need to get our buns to Washington. And I remember that ad from the time I was a like a junior, sophomore. No, at that point I was probably a senior. I was a senior at Willamette University in Salem. And I remember seeing that ad at the time and thinking it was pretty funny. And when I read about it on Wikipedia earlier this week, I thought it was funny too. Kind of an odd way to approach political advertising. And it didn't work. They both lost. Stan lost in the primary. Jim lost in the general to Democrat Darlene Hooley, who went on to represent the 5th District for a very long time before she retired. So a little Oregon political history, get your buns to Washington, not a great political slogan as it turns out. Overall, solid year for Oregon Republicans. Didn't meet with expectations, or at least mine, but a by any other measure, a pretty solid year. So that has people thinking and talking about what does that mean for Oregon Republicans going forward. Does it mean that there is a resurgence, the Republicans are in the beginning phases of a resurgence to some degree of relevance in the state, or is it kind of a blip? And given that my predictions have been very bad over recent months, I'm reluctant to make a prediction, but I do see some reasons for both theories, both the theory that Oregon Republicans are starting to make some inroads uh, that can have some staying power in Oregon, and also the the theory that 2022 was kind of a a high watermark for the near future for Republicans. I think that the, in terms of arguments or or reasons why Republicans may be in a position to have more of an impact in Oregon politics, elected Democrats in Oregon are well, well to the left of the median Oregon voter. Even the median Oregon primary voter the median voter in a presidential contest, the median voter in a midterm contest. Tina Kotek is probably significantly to the left of Kate Brown. Kate Brown was significantly to the left of the median voter in Oregon, and she was deeply unpopular, in part, not in full, because of how hard left she was. Oregon voters, I believe, in spite of you know the outcome of some of these elections this year, Oregon voters are still concerned about homelessness. They're still concerned about crime. They're still concerned about drugs. They're going to increasingly be concerned about the economy to the degree we dip into a recession next year, as is predicted. And the Democrats' response to those things, we know what those are, right? They've been running the show here for decades. And we know that they will almost certainly double down on their approach previously, which is a relatively soft touch on crime, although I expect that to moderate a little bit, just out of pure electoral self-preservation. You know, a lenient attitude toward hard illegal drugs like fentanyl, heroin, other drugs that were decriminalized in Measure 110. And with regard to the economy, prioritizing revenue to the state and thus state employees and thus state labor, state employee labor unions and thus Democrat campaign coffers over the needs of private sector workers, people on a fixed income. That issue, to the degree that I'm right, that Democrats will end up seeking a tax increase sometime in the next two years, will really put them in a position of once again going to taxpayers when taxpayers are hurting via some combination of inflation and recession, i.e. stagflation, 
and asking them for more so that the state can keep funding its activities in the rapidly growing fashion that it has in recent years. And in the past, Democrats have gotten away with that, and they may get away with it this time as well. And it would be, given historical voting patterns in Oregon, it would be a mistake to bet against that. On the other hand, you add that kind of economic stuff to the crime, assuming it continues to increase and it shows no signs of abating, especially with regard to murder, the murder rate in Portland, which is hitting just hit another record, and we've still got almost a month left in the year. The crime stuff, you add the economic stuff to the crime stuff to the homeless stuff, and you've got kind of a, a stew of negative issues that are easily or should be easily pinned by Republicans on Democrats. NAVs, so non-affiliated voters, should. And I think we saw that they did, to a large degree, blame Democrat leadership for those problems in, in 2022. It just wasn't enough to purely localize the race, which is what Christine Drazen tried desperately to do, which is to keep the, the race focused on Oregon issues and what's going wrong in Oregon and how Democrat policies in Oregon have failed Oregonians for a very long time now. And the Democrats were successful in nationalizing the race, assisted by the reappearance of Donald Trump in the days leading up to the election to remind voter, enough voters that, hey, the Republicans, maybe we've made some bad decisions, but Republicans are, are kind of out there. And remember, you don't like them and you haven't voted for them in a really long time. And there's a reason for that. Democrats were successful in, in wooing enough disaffected, middle-of-the-road, NAV, moderate Democrats, moderate Republicans to vote essentially against the more extreme elements of the Republican Party, despite uh, Drazen's efforts to kind of distance herself from those folks. So the issue set should be, continue to be good for Republicans. Uh, You know, they still have, Democrats still have unitary control to the degree there continue to be problems with crime, homelessness, and the economy in Oregon. Voters ought to be increasingly disaffected by the leadership of Oregon Democrats. I don't see any reason to think that Tina Kotek will will moderate relative to Kate Brown. In fact, I would expect the opposite. The issue set should continue to favor Republicans in, in coming cycles. That's really the best thing that, from an electoral standpoint, Republicans have going for them in 2024 and beyond. That should continue to be the case for a while, at least. Going against Republicans is, you know, the fact that the Republican Party has a really bad brand in Oregon and the fact that that Democrats were successful in their ability to remind voters that the Republican Party is the party of Donald Trump, the party of January 6th, the party of election denial, and all that other stuff. And that's still, in spite of all the kind of front and center issues that are facing Oregonians that they see every day in their cities and in their neighborhoods, and they talk about around their kitchen table, it it still has enough salience to enough voters in Oregon that it swung the election, I believe, in large measure. That uncertainty with the Republican brand will be exacerbated to the degree that Republicans nominate Donald Trump as president. He is deeply, deeply, deeply unpopular in Oregon. Any Republican nominee, whether it be Ron DeSantis or Kristi Noem or any of these other kind of potential Republican presidential candidates are likely to be somewhat unpopular in Oregon. But the unpopularity and the, the visceral 
dislike of Donald Trump among many Oregon, Oregon voters, not just Democrats, they all hate him too, but many, many NAVs, a lot of Republicans are, in Oregon particularly, don't like Donald Trump. That's not to say you shouldn't. I personally think that he is an electoral albatross around the neck of the Republican Party. But fine, if you like him, that's great. Every time I talk about or write about Donald Trump, I get some nasty emails from people who like him a lot, which is fine. I'm, I'm just pointing out my view that he contributes to Republicans losing more often than not since he, he won the presidency in 2016. So if, if Trump is the nominee, that's a big pro- problem heading into November 2024. 2024 is, of course, a presidential election year to the degree that Republicans did reasonably well in 2022 because they were able to localize races and make them about Oregon issues, not national. That's going to be much harder in 2024, even with a less polarizing Republican nominee on the ballot. The zeitgeist in the political world in Oregon will be much more focused on those national issues because of the the occurrence of a presidential election along with the congressional and state and local elections in 2024. So that probably all works against Oregon Republicans. If Trump is a nominee, it definitely in a big way works against Republicans. Problematic as well, even if Trump doesn't end up being the nominee, he is running and presumably will stay in the field at least until the spring of 2024, which means that uh, there's going to be a whole lot of media coverage of Donald Trump that Oregon voters are going to be reading and seeing between now when the primaries are occurring in the spring of 2024, which will in turn suck the oxygen out of the ability of Republicans in Oregon and elsewhere to talk about issues that the majority of voters actually care about. That's a major threat, I think, to Republicans' ability to be competitive in 2024 is kind of just the national dynamics that will be that will be more front and center as we head into that election. It's hard to imagine that I mean the 2022 election just happened and here we are already in a in a political world that is going to be from now forward defined by a presidential election that happens about 23 months from right now. But that is the reality of politics these days. It never stops, and the presidency looms large over every last bit of it. That's kind of my take. Again, no prediction. I think there's some factors that help Republicans. There's some factors that run against Republicans. We'll just have to, and many of those are outside of the Republicans' control. Of course, some of those are within Republicans' control. If Republicans, for instance, in 2024, nominate bad candidates, more extreme candidates, they will do worse than they otherwise would. They were largely successful in 22 in nominating Christine Drazen, who was a eminently reasonable, non-threatening Republican alternative. But there was no reason to believe that that was going to be the case heading into the primary. Many people running for that office, all of whom I believe would have performed worse than Christine Drazen in the in the primary and the Oregon primary electorate, as oftentimes happens in states where the party has not done well for a long time, can have a tendency to take that out on the broader electorate by just nominating people that are too extreme, frankly, to win in the general election. 
And if Republicans go down that road in a reaction to the disappointment over 2022, they will become even more irrelevant in 2024. And that's always a risk for the Democrats. If if Republicans, and I think they would be correctly viewing the political dynamics if they were to think this, believe that their best chance at winning power in Oregon is to present a reasonable common sense alternative to the extremism that Democrats are offering and are likely to continue to offer, they need to nominate candidates that fit that bill. They cannot nominate candidates that are are themselves seen as extreme or themselves are extreme or weird, etc. There's a big untapped demand in Oregon, I think, for elected officials and candidates who just aren't weird, that listen to voters and have policies that they want to implement, treat people with respect and treat their opponents with respect, stick to their guns and try to get done what they they want to get done and aren't pursuing some world altering ideological change from their perch in whatever state office they're seeking. They're just addressing the needs of Oregonians. And those needs right now, frankly, align really well with what Republicans ought to be able to do with regard to homelessness, crime, and the economy. And there's a good case to be made there, but that case cannot be made if the Republican Party nominates people that just come off as weird and extreme. That just doesn't work. One kind of important race, so kind of the to look at the stuff that will be on the ballot in Oregon in 24, of course, no governor's race in, in 24. Tina Kotek will be completing the first half of her first term as governor, perhaps only. And so they're basically of the state legislative races, so control of the House and the Senate in Oregon will be on the ballot in 24 as it is every two years. But interestingly is, and this is something to kind of think about now, and I think this is a race that that could be intriguing for for Republicans in 2024, is the attorney general's race. Ellen Rosenblum has been the attorney general, which is, of course, a Democrat, since 2012. She is 71 years old right now. She will be, I guess, doing math, 73 years old in 2024. She's been what I would consider a relatively low-profile attorney general. She's kind of towed the line on Democrat Party policies. I'm on her email list somehow, and her emails are just down the line stuff you would expect that your run-of-the-mill Oregon statewide elected Democrat would say. You know, she's opposed stuff that Trump wanted to do when he was president. She's supported stuff that Biden wants to do while he's president. If she's going to be 73 years old, who knows if she runs for re-election or not in 2024. But regardless of whether she does or not, the AG position is one that I think is nearly ideally suited for Republicans in this environment, because so many of the voters' concerns orient around law enforcement and just the rule of law. And it's, it's a position from which a candidate could articulate a strong, you know, public safety law enforcement platform or set of policies that would where you could drag in the the kind of 
failures of Democrat leadership to address those problems and talk about what you would do differently as a Republican attorney general. I think that you get the right candidate in there as a Republican, there'd be a good chance to make that argument that, hey, this is a position that in this environment, even for Oregon, Oregon voters who are kind of reluctant to vote for Republicans, this is a position that we ought to trust Republicans with because they're more in line with what your you know, suburban Portland NAV or moderate Democrat voter wants than are the Democrats who are still beholden to, you know, they won't say that they're defund the police, but they they certainly have those elements within their party. And they, in that regard, they're well to the left of median Oregon voters. So that's a race to keep track of and probably in my mind, kind of the top shelf state race in 2024. And that's the Oregon attorney general race. Let's shift now to scenes from the apocalypse or stories from the apocalypse. I should have looked back at this and seen seen what this was. I think last last time I did a podcast, I told you about a story from Portland about a tenant or former tenant having attacked his landlord with a, let's see, he attacked him with an air gun and then the landlord attacked him back with a sword. Today, a little different. It's not really apocalyptic so much as it is just kind of defining and consistent with kind of the, the political correctness and the wokeness that we see in Portland. And this is from the Oregonian Oregon Live headline, Mixed Emotions. Portland Preschool Faces Closure as Church Repurposes Land to House Indigenous families. You may or may not be aware that at the beginning of many, say, city council meetings in Oregon, the city councilors, and this is a new development, oftentimes do what's called a land acknowledgement, in which they say, you know, we want to acknowledge that Ben sits on the land of the Warm Springs tribe and, and these other tribes, and you know, we we thank them, or you know, we acknowledge that this is their land. And so, consistent with that. In Portland, the Presbyterian Church of Laurelhurst has decided to kick out a, a preschool called the Portland Tillamook Preschool that has been operating on the church property for 25 years because it has informed the preschool in October that it will terminate its lease a year earlier than scheduled. The school will need to vacate the Northeast Portland Church building by the end of June the Presbytery intends to repurpose the land where the church stands into a, <laughs> into a tiny home village for indigenous single parents and children. The collaboration with three other entities, Indigenous Organization, Future Generations Collaborative, Affordable Housing Group, Levin Community Land, and Human Co- Coalition, and Westminster Presbytery Church, that may eventually result in the local indigenous community assuming ownership of the land as part of the national land back movement that advocates for returning land to indigenous people. So you've got this preschool that's been operating there for 25 years. The church says we want to set up a tiny home village for single indigenous parents, and we're going to kick you out of there to do it. You know, fine. The church owns its property. It should, it can do whatever it wants with its property. But then you get into the situation of the importance of having preschools in Portland and elsewhere. And it turns out that they're very much in demand. 
throughout the state. Preschool, here from the story from or- the Oregonian, preschool allows children to develop social emotional skills and adjust to environments outside of the home with their, when their brains are most elastic, ensuring that they arrive at kindergarten ready to learn. Extensive research has shown children who attend high-quality preschools experience better social health and economic outcomes later in life. Working families also rely on preschools for childcare. A 2021 Oregon State University study showed that more than half of Multnomah County's preschool-aged children did not have access to childcare slots before the pandemic. Every county in the state was designated as a childcare desert for children between ages 0 and 2, meaning 70% of children do not have access to childcare slots, the report found. During the pandemic, Multnomah County lost 300 or a fifth of its child care providers, according to the county, putting added strain on families looking for quality child care options. I guess that child care desert is getting all the more parched because this church in Portland has decided to boot that preschool out in order to create a tiny home village for single indigenous parents potentially end up giving that land back to the indigenous people that at one time owned or occupied that land to the degree ownership was a a concept that that tribe recognized or not. The end result of that kind of approach and the land acknowledgement ends up with less preschool space for Portlanders, including for indigenous Portlanders who may have preschool-aged children and may not be in a position where they want to or need to live in a tiny home village at a church. Just to say that all this stuff has trade-offs, and in this case, we know how that the church has made that trade-off calculation in Portland. That's all I've got for today. Thanks again for listening. Again, if you are a paid subscriber of the Oregon Roundup and would like to be part of the paid subscriber-only Oregon Roundup Facebook group, send me an email at jeff at eagerlawpc.com. If you're not a paid subscriber, go ahead and pony up. It's as little as $5 a month. You get access to the Facebook group and some other cool stuff that's coming down the pike. One other quick announcement. One of the things I'm looking at doing with the Roundup in 2023 is hopefully adding some news coverage to it, and specifically news coverage around the Oregon legislative session that begins in January of 2023. I think one thing that Oregon is lacking severely is the coverage of news, political news, policy news, from a center-right perspective, which doesn't mean it's not objective journalism. It's got to be objective journalism. There's just issues that our current media do not cover because they're all coming at it from a leftward perspective. So things like the impact of Oregon's land use system on housing prices, on employment, on the performance of our economy is severely lacking, and I believe one of the biggest factors that impacts Oregonians on a on a daily basis. That's That kind of coverage just isn't there. Coverage of what I believe to be the failure, uh, utter failure of Measure 110 and the decriminalization of drugs in Oregon, the failure of the state of Oregon to be a good partner with local communities to help clean up the homeless crisis in the state, and which leads in turn to the fact that we have among the worst homeless problems in the country here in Oregon. There are all these issues that are percolating out there and affect Oregon voters in a very serious way that just don't get the news coverage that they deserve because of the political ideology of the people who are doing the news coverage. 
So if you know of anyone who is a at least non-progressive journalist type, preferably young, hungry, and inexpensive, who would like to get, get some experience under their belt covering the Oregon legislature and other Oregon political and policy issues for the Oregon Roundup, shoot me an email. Again, that email address is jeff at eagerlawpc.com. You know, I fully expect to pay someone to do this, but probably wouldn't be paying them a whole lot. So with that ringing endorsement for that position, thanks again for listening. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Roundup Podcast. To share your thoughts with Jeff, you can email him at jeff at oregonroundup.com. You can also subscribe to his newsletter at oregonroundup.substack.com.